Hi friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This one is called Empty Seats and Elephants. And I'm in Melbourne, Australia. I'm actually in my hotel room. Tonight I'm doing the last of my Australia events, and then I'm heading home in the morning. And this trip, besides tons of surfing, which is always just pure joy, the people that I've gotten to meet and the energy, I swear, the energy and love with that, with those of you who are in Sydney for the event the other night, I don't know if I've ever experienced anything like that. It's just, uh, just unbelievable. I'm so grateful. And I've realized, because I told a story at the Sydney event that I think I told like once before to a group, but do you ever have an event that happened years ago, but you realize how much it's informing the present moment, and the sense of gratitude and wonder that I could come to the other side of the world and there would be all these people here, and there'd be just so much love and connection, and it's just uh, it's just been an extraordinary time, and I, I want to actually tell you in this podcast this story about why all of this means so much to me, and my hope in telling you the story, and then... Um, another story is that you'll find your story in that and maybe you'll see some of the things that I'm seeing and feel some of the things that I'm feeling. Um, a couple of things coming up. We're about five weeks out from the release of my new book, which is called How to Be Here. And the, the thing about writing a book is you live with the ideas and the content for years. They're sort of rattling around in your head and your heart. Um, but you don't know really what you have on your hands. You just sort of sit there trying to get all of this onto the page. And there's lots of stops and starts and lots of times when you just delete everything you've worked on for an hour or a day or a week or a month. And you sort of, but that's all just part of it is you just, you keep going and eventually it starts to sort of take form and shape. Uh, but this book, How to Be Here, it uh, this matters so much to me, the ideas in this book. Um, and, and it comes out of things that have happened to me that have shaped me that only now looking back, I feel like they make more sense. And so it's my attempt to sort of share what I've learned about some of these things and to pass it along and, and to do everything I can to help you see some of this, see what I've seen essentially, which is I think why all writers at some level, you want people to see this thing that has captivated you, that has moved you. Um, and uh, one of the thing about the things about the book is I kept thinking, these ideas, I feel like this is, like they demand to be worked through. Like you got to enter into them and walk around in them and then discuss them and throw things against the wall and see what sticks. And so I was thinking, how? what should I do or, with this ideas and it was like oh we should go on tour but like deconstruct the tour experience so what if so we found uh art galleries dance halls event spaces around the country and the first leg of the tour which starts in march and runs through um runs through june the first leg uh is we're going to do it in the round so we're going to bring in chairs and do like the biggest living room ever so basically just concentric circles uh, with no stage, just me walking in among you, and we're going to take these ideas and take them way farther and see what they're doing to you. So it'll be like this live, and we're going to do it on Saturdays. For those of you who can't get away during the week, 
Um, I'm doing Saturday events around the country. The first leg will be in America, and then we'll see where we go from there. So um, we're starting in uh, March 5th in Denver, and then Chicago, then Miami, Austin, Minneapolis, Portland, Tulsa. Um, June 25th will be in Brooklyn, and these will be all-day Saturday events, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and we're going to go, and it'll be this interactive, live, give-and-take. I'll be presenting uh, ideas from the book and then taking the ideas farther, and then you'll be going from there, and then we're, it's just, yes, so exciting. And then the Friday night um, before those Saturday events, I'll be doing Q&A and signings and bookstores, and we're going to be having some of those details will be public pretty soon, but you can get tickets for the first leg, and oh my word, so excited to see you. And then if you, uh, I send out emails to tell you about stuff coming up, and um, sometimes there's things that just the best way to tell you about it is through email. So on my site, robbell.com, there's a circle that just said get emails from me, and uh Give us your email so that you can be on an email list for interesting things coming up. And actually, we have a couple things coming up besides the tour that will probably go out on email first to give you, like, you know, email folks first dibs. And uh, that's all coming pretty soon. And uh, I'm assuming, I'm hoping you heard Robcast69 with the one and only Jeremy Courtney. Oh, my word. Uh, it was like an interview, but it felt like more like a an experience, like a... Oh, what an extraordinary, inspiring person. I'm telling you, interviewing people, and I've got some interviews lined up that, um, but Jeremy lives in Iraq, and he talked about what life is like in Iraq and the work that he's doing with the Preemptive Love Coalition, and then what it was like to first hear about ISIS. Amazing. Just amazing. And then uh, my beloved friend Pete Holmes, world-renowned comic. Uh, Last week or the week before, I'm so turned around on the days. But Pete and I did a show at Largo, which is a club uh, near my house in L.A., and we recorded it. And if you've ever wondered what happens at a Rob Bell Pete Holmes show, we recorded it, and you can get it on my site at the Live at Largo circle on the site. And you can hear the <laughs> what, what happened, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, what happened. Unbelievable night. So uh, there's a couple things coming up, a couple things going on, and uh, it's now time for me to tell you this story. And um, in the fall of 2011, um, we moved to California that fall. We moved December 1st, but right before we moved from Michigan to California, I had had a tour booked from earlier in the year. I actually think the tour was booked long before we decided to uh, leave Michigan and move to California. But I did a speaking tour around the East Coast. And so I literally think the last date of the tour, I flew home and then went right from the airport because our house had been packed up and emptied and and went to my in-laws and got in the car and then drove across the country. So it was that sort of last thing before we moved to California. But I would show up on the speaking tour, fall of 2011, and I'd show up to a city where I'd been a year or two years before, and maybe, you know, they'd sold 1,200 tickets, 1,500 tickets, 
And I'd show up and find out that they'd sold 63 tickets. And I would go out on stage in these venues, some venues that I'd done before, and it had sold out. And instead of 1,100 people, there were like 72 huddled in the middle seats and lots and lots and lots of empty seats. And uh, what had happened is earlier that year, I had had a book come out called Love Wins. And uh, I actually talked about Love Wins in the Everything is Spiritual tour, and we just filmed Everything is Spiritual, and the film's going to come out soon, and I'm so excited for you to see it. But there's this line where I, I get to say, in 2011, I wrote a book called Love Wins, and it was unique in the history of publishing because everybody who read it really liked it. <laughs> ah, that makes me laugh. And some of the people who didn't like it even read it. <laughs> uh, some of you will think that's funny later. Um, but what had happened is, that, is this book, Love Wins, came out. And uh, I had been boycotted before, and people had constantly been leaving our church and we had made some numas, and those made people deeply offended. And I had given sermons that had um, gotten all sorts of criticism. And it had become normal that when I would go places and speak, there would be protesters out front. And I remember uh, hearing about a rally where a whole group of churches had gotten their youth together to hold a rally to talk about why I was so dangerous, <laughs> as if that's the best thing you could think of to do. Um, but... This book, um, so that, that that had been sort of a normal way of life. I didn't really go anywhere um, in public without running into somebody who had some problem with what I do. And so that had just become a normal part of life. But then this book, Love Wins, came out, and it seemed like all the knobs got turned up. Um, and I discovered that there were a whole there was a whole world of people who th- this was some sort of... Um, line in the sand or something, even though there's nothing new in the book. Um, you don't have a problem with me. Uh, I'm merely helping you see that, that within the Jesus tradition, there is a wide way of talking about some of these big issues of God and life and death and, and hope and all that sort of thing. Um, so honestly, the book wasn't anything new, and so I knew from the beginning, wait, if you have a problem with this book, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with your own tradition. Nevertheless, when religious people believe they are defending the Almighty, there is a unique venom that they spew, and I was sort of on the receiving end of that. And uh, people boycotted the book, and I'm told that lots of people made a big deal about making sure that no one read um, the book. And uh, and the church that I had first worked in, where I had been mentored, that really helped shape me, did like, you know, a seven or eight page single space paper on why um, nobody should read this book and why it was so off guard. And it's funny because I asked somebody when I was told that, what is their position on, did they, did they write a paper on Mein Kampf? <laughs> I guess that's just funny to me. That was Hitler's book. Um, it's funny that you would, have a, you would have a position on Love Wins, but not something like that, um, which is a really weird commentary, but still makes me laugh very hard. Uh, 
So what I discovered that fall, the book had come out in March, when I went out on tour, is that I had lost a massive portion of my audience. And I remember one promoter said, when you used to come here, vans load of people, vans full of people from churches would come, and now they don't. And uh, a friend of mine, I remember a friend of mine, very wise friend, was like, yeah, you lost, you lost a big chunk of your audience. You, that book cut you off from lots of people who would have come. That's, that's what happened. He said it sort of very matter of fact. You know sometimes how you need a friend to just tell you like straight up this is what happened. And uh, it was this really interesting feeling when I would walk out on stage and be like, oh, I used to walk out and there were lots of people. And now I walk out and there aren't. This, uh, huh, I, I wonder... I wonder where this is headed. Um, I didn't set out to talk to religious people. Um, that's not why I'm here. And what I had discovered over the years is that when I would say something like, God is love, and love is the ground of our being, there was one group of people who were like, you heretic, are you even, how can you even say that you're a follower of Jesus? And there was this other world of people that were like, oh, that is so good, there's more? How awesome is that? And I, I knew from early on, I wasn't here to help religious people be more religious or somehow defend that I'm religious or orthodox or Christian, whatever that means enough, that I was here to talk to everybody who isn't listening, everybody who can't do that. Um, and Kristen and I had this trust, this sense, the, this conviction that there were countless people out there who were more hungry than ever, who wanted spiritual direction, who needed to hear some good news. And we had had this conviction in 2011 that we need to leave the local church that we'd started, that we had beloved friends at, that we, I mean, we just, what an extraordinary thing to be a part of. But we had this conviction that we were supposed to keep going, that this was the natural evolution of our path, was to move uh, to California and to keep pursuing the work. Essentially, where do people tell stories? And how far can we take this work? Um, and we just knew that the next step, sometimes all you know is the next step. We didn't know what it would look like. We didn't know what exactly shape it would take. We didn't know if we would fall flat on our faces. All we knew is that one next step. End this season. Give Get everything you got and then wrap it up and start another season. This season is done. You have to start the next season. You don't quite know what it is, but just keep pursuing the work. Um, and so that's what we were doing. And the people who were a part of the church that we'd started, Mars Hill, that they were so kind and gracious. Um, and I, it wasn't like I said, I'm leaving you guys to go do X. It was just I'm leaving because we have to keep going. And they somehow understood that. Um, I will never forget, they got an email on a Thursday in September of 2011 saying Rob and Kristen are leaving to go to Los Angeles and pursue, pursue new work. That's all they got, and Rob will tell you more about, more about it on Sunday. And then I walked up on stage on that Sunday, and I just walked up, and the place immediately, they stood up and started cheering. Like, you're leaving, and 
just this massive standing ovation. Maybe that told me something. <laughs> but it was like this love, this you've been telling us to take risks and go, so now go. It was, I'll never forget it. And if you're part of Mars Hill, I'll, I'll never, ever forget that that was the response. Um, thank you, and now you got to go, and it's sad, and we're grieving, and we're also like, yes, you got to go. Um, but back to that speaking tour that fall, I remember uh, promoters who assumed that all these people would show, who normally would so- show, who didn't show. A promoter takes a risk in each city, so promoters were losing money. And... Uh, I didn't have any money, like for a tour bus where you would sleep through the night and then you'd wake up at the next city. So my friend Matthew came with me, and we rented. We did it. We drove those um, cities. So and Matthew's six four and I'm six three, and I we could only afford the cheapest rental car. So it's like we're in the middle of Virginia in a red Ford Festiva. You know what I'm saying? And it's seven, eight-hour drives each day to get to the next city. And I'd be driving along, and um, we would have gotten like an email or a phone call. Yeah, we sold 52 tickets, um, 81 tickets. And I remember thinking, oh, uh, maybe I used to talk to more people. Maybe that was a period of life. And now that's over. Um, maybe that's what I used to do. And now uh, it's going to be different from here on out. And we would drive. I remember we were listening to Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, uh, the audio version, just hour after hour. And we get lost in the middle of Rhode Island. And, um, you know, you're on like Google Maps trying to figure out where you are to drive. I remember just those hours in the car listening to that book thinking your life is ending as it was and there's a new thing starting and you don't know what it is and you don't know what will be on the other side and there are no guarantees. The only guarantee you have is that tonight there'll be a really, really big room with a small group of people huddled in the front and lots and lots of empty seats. Um, I remember in the end doing the like spreadsheet and realizing that I had lost so much money on that tour. Um, I had actually paid to go speak. (laughs) Um, And and by the way, I swear those are some of the best talks I've ever done. Um, Because you find out in those moments sort of what you're made of. Um, You can be bitter and scared and fearful, or you can be like, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down in flames. We're going to go down giving it everything we have. Um, And so I just drove along hour after hour, did um, did those events, and then went home and we started this new life. And there's no guarantee that it's all going to be up and to the right. Um, you picture like your XY graph in business with the arrow that just keeps going up and up and up. There's no guarantee. Um, sometimes you doing the thing that you know is the next right thing for you takes you in the opposite direction. Sometimes being true to who you are and maintaining your integrity 
and saying no to what you know for sure you're supposed to say no to and saying yes to what you know is the right thing to say yes to, sometimes it takes you in the opposite direction. Sometimes it's less people. Sometimes it's less uh, uh, what's considered achievement. Maybe it's what's less success or whatever words. Um, There's no guarantee that living from your heart and following your path will be up and to the right as the world around you defines up and to the right. Bigger, better, more popular, more successful, more money, whatever it is. Um, Maybe you have this thing knocking around in your head and heart that you wonder if it's the next right step. But you keep looking at the numbers or the chart and you're like, yeah, but that might mean that we might we might have to move into a smaller house. Yep, yep. Uh, I might need to sell whatever that is and use it to pay off that. And that might mean there's no savings for all. Yep, yep. Uh, a bunch of people might not get it. That's correct. Uh, you may open that new thing. You may start it. You may launch it. You may pursue it. And nobody may show up opening night. That's all a possibility. Uh, You don't know how it's going to go. And all you have sometimes is your conviction that if you stay doing the exact same thing, there will be some sort of death and better to risk complete failure the other direction, which isn't failure if you're following your conviction. Um, There's no guarantee that it's up and to the right. There's no guarantee that people are going to love it. There's no guarantee that people are even going to care. Um, Sometimes what you have is you're driving around in a Ford Festiva with this sense that the only way is forward. And there's one step, and you just take that. And all you have is trust that in some strange way you're more alive than ever. And that's more important than all of the external metrics and ways that we cook up to measure how things are going. All you know sometimes is you're more alive in your heart than ever, and that's what you live from. There's this interesting illusion that some people have freedom to just, you know, live from their heart, just to make it up as they go along because, well, you know, they're really successful, so they can do that. Um, But that is an illusion. Everybody that I have been with and gotten to ask questions of and I've gotten to gain wisdom from them, they didn't sell their soul and then later get the freedom to live with integrity and passion. They started out that way. Uh, And there's this excuse, well, you know, they can say that because they're whoever. Uh, Think about David Bowie. Well, David Bowie could be free and creative because, you know, he's David Bowie. No. Um, David Bowie started out that way. He was willing to risk and to make no money and to have the crowd be like, what the, Ziggy Stardust, what are you doing? Um, Somewhere early, early on, he decided he'd rather be David Bowie than someone else. And you know that came with a cost. It always comes with a cost. There's this illusion that somehow the freedom that some people seem to have to just live from their true self, you know, they just get to do that because 
they got real... No, whatever success you think they have, it came because early on they made decisions and they were willing to step into the unknown and take the hits and they decided to live from their core, from their soul early on. Um, there's this great business book from Good to Great where this uh, author, Jim Collins, he talks about companies that seem to be focused just on making the best thing, trusting that if they make the best thing, the finances will follow and the profits will follow. And he said, what's interesting, if you look at those companies, because, well, of course, they're really successful, they can talk like that. But he said, if you trace their earliest origins, they set out simply to make the best thing. And they knew if they got that right, the profits would follow. And he actually takes you through the data on this. When I first read that, I was like, no way, because it was in a completely different area, sort of business world. But it, for me, it was like, ah, this is what I've been feeling. Uh, you decide early on that you're going to live from your heart and you're going to pursue your path. And of course, you're going to run into some walls and you're going to trip and fall flat on your face. That's all part of it. Um, but you decide, and you can decide now. And it, there will always be cost. There will always be butterflies. There will always be nerves. There will always be the sense like your palms are sweaty and you're, you're wondering, what have I done? Um, what are we doing here? This is crazy. That's, that's just part of it. Um, are things not how you want them to be? Do you have this sense of, I wonder what if? Um, do you have a sense of restlessness, like there's something new coming? Or simply is it a sense like this, the, the chapter that you're in is coming to an end? Now, sometimes uh, this is a sign of unhealth that... You know, in, in the recovery movement, wherever you go, there you are. Sometimes you have the sense, like, I just need to get out of here. Then you get out of here and you realize that whatever was the problem there has followed you there. So first off, sometimes you have to go deeper in and ask better questions. Like, is this just me hitting the eject button because I can't deal with the pain of staying here and actually confronting what's here? And it will just follow you somewhere else. So sometimes it's unhealth and it's toxic and we need to stay where we are and actually do all the work that we need to do there. Um, but other times, it is the end of a season, and there's a new season beginning, but it will always involve some element of risk, either the risk of going deep into our own interior life to discover how come there's this thing wherever I am, there it is. What is it? So there's always risk. It's the risk of staying put but journeying deep into your interiors, or it's the risk of trying something new. Um, there will always be some form of risk. Um, that's just how it works. And here's why I say that. Pay attention when you find yourself asking everyone around you what they think. Um, this can be really helpful when you're looking for the wisdom of people around you that you trust, that love you, that you trust them enough to tell you the hard truths. Um, it can be re it's absolutely necessary that you have sought the wisdom of the elders. You know what I'm saying? Like there's the people around you who know you well enough that they'll actually tell you you're crazy. That's not helpful. I think you're actually running from something. Um, so you have that element of asking everyone around you what they think. 
But then when you have that wisdom, there is a thing that can happen sometimes when you keep asking everyone around you what, what they think. But it's actually a way of avoiding what you know is true. It's like we keep asking because that's how we ease the anxiety of knowing that we actually do know what to do. Um, that there's fear there and it has to be confronted. And it's too terrifying. So we just keep talking. Um, now, fear kept you alive. Your reptilian brain, your early ancestors, like fear kept you alive. It let you know there's a lion in the bush. Run. Uh, so fear is a part of it. Don't fight it. Acknowledge it. It's there. Don't pretend like you don't have fear. Um, but there is, a, there is an inner wisdom. I take seriously the Christ wisdom. Jesus, who says, I in you and you in me. You possess an inner Christ consciousness, an inner Christ wisdom. It is a north star deep in your bones. It is the image of the divine that you reflect. It is there. And it tells you, it reminds you, it clarifies your true self. And and one of the tasks of the spiritual life is to learn to listen to that voice, to seek the wisdom of those around you, but then to listen to that inner Christ wisdom and to learn when you are being distracted and pulled away from that inner Christ wisdom that reminds you who you are, that speaks to you of your deepest true self. And here's one of the ways you know when you are in that flow and on that path is you will stop needing everybody around you to understand. Uh, There's this thing that happens. You ever find yourself in this explaining mode when you're trying to get everybody else around around you to understand the step that you're taking? Um, The energy that you spend trying to get the people around you to understand what you're doing is energy that you could spend doing it. All that energy that's getting expended, either trying to explain or, worse yet, trying to defend, is energy you could spend doing it. And for some people, you see it. You have this vision. You have this glimpse of the thing you're going towards. They don't. So to honor them, just do it. For a lot of people, once you've done it, they'll get it, they'll see it, but not until you've done it. And sometimes when we keep talking about the thing we're going to do, the thing you're going to write, the thing you're going to start, why doesn't everybody around me get what I'm trying to do? Because it's your path. You're the one who sees it. You're the one who's been given that vision. They don't see it because it's not their path. So stop trying to get them on your path. Just do your path. Take the step. We all have our empty seat moments. The moments when, you've, when you're facing your deepest fears that you're done, that you're irrelevant, and yet you have this inner wisdom that tells you no. I remember on those drives and looking out those empty seats and thinking, I know there are people out there who are so hungry for a new spiritual path, who have no problem with Jesus, who actually find Jesus more compelling than ever. They just can't do that whole giant thing that's built up around them. I know there's a tribe out there somewhere. Um, 
sometimes all you have is a deep inner conviction and then you just have a bunch of empty seats and you keep going. Uh, there's this story about Eleazar the Maccabee. It's in the book of Maccabees, 1st Maccabees 6, uh, to get specific. And uh, actually, Maccabees is an intertestamental book. So it's a book in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and, it, and it gives you sort of the annals of Jewish history in that intertestamental period. And the Greeks, specifically the Seleucids, and specifically Antiochus Epiphanes, had conquered um, Israel. And there was a constant battle, and the Maccabees were battling them, essentially fighting them off. So I shouldn't say they conquered, they were trying to conquer, and there were these heroic Maccabees, this Jewish family that rose up and led this uh, resistance. And there's a story about Eleazar, who was the second youngest brother of Judah the Maccabee, the legendary Maccabean. But Eleazar is in battle against the Greeks, and the Greeks would march in a very specific formation. They would march with a thousand soldiers surrounding an elephant. And then the elephant had a tower built on the elephant, and there were uh, archers, bow and arrows, firing bow, bow and arrows from the top of these massive towers that were strapped to the back of an elephant. And there's this story that Eleazar sees the Greeks, and the elephant that he sees in the middle of the thousand warriors is got an extra tower on like it's got like a really nice tower on it and he thinks that that might be the king's elephant and so he fights through the thousand armored warriors he battles all the way through them and gets under the elephant and he stabs the elephant and kills it and the elephant dies and then it falls on top of him and kills him and collapses on top of him and kills him. <laughs> it's that the best, weirdest story ever. He kills the elephant and it dies, but then it falls on top of him and kills him. Uh, and here's why I love the story. By the way, I've never told that story to a group that the group just didn't go instantly quiet. Like, is that supposed to be inspiring? Am I supposed to be moved by that story? What a weird story. Uh, here's why I love it. If you're going to die, and you're going to die, we're all going to die, but you're living. So if you're going to die, you might as well go down in flames. You might as well get crushed by an elephant. You're going, you're going to die. You're going to have financial struggle. Life is going to knock you around. You are going to have pain. People are going to betray you. There are going to be times when you look at the bills and you're like, how are we ever going to pay this? You are going to be misunderstood. All this is going to happen. So you might as well throw yourself into something that fills you with life. It's not like you find your path and it's just you find something you love to do and then it's easy. It's going to be difficult no matter what. There's going to be some form of empty seats no matter what. So you might as well, you you might as you might as well go for it. Uh, and I know that sounds really motivational speakery. And I'm that's because it is because that's what I believe. You get this one shot at it. Why live your life wondering what if? Why why live one standing at a distance from your own life? Um, you. you you throw yourself into it. 
and it will look different for you than it is for me. Um, yours, there will be moments when there's this one step you have to take, and it will be such a small step. And no one around you will understand how significant it is, but you will understand. Um, so there's a new book coming out. Nobody may read it. Nobody may buy it. Nobody may care. I'll go on this new tour. There may be 20 people on this new tour, and I'll give them my very best. It always has some element of risk. And if you're like, well, that's nice for you to say, no. There's always some element of risk. You never have any idea how you or your work is going to be received in the world. It doesn't matter how much you've done it. doesn't matter how long you've done it. There are no guarantees. You throw yourself into it knowing that you cannot control how people will respond to you. So... Like I walked out on the stage a couple nights ago in Sydney tonight, I'll get to speak in Melbourne, and there's people there, and they're so happy to be there, and I'm so happy to be there. And those of you in Sydney, when I said to be here and to have you show up, I can't tell you what it means. There's a reason why I say that. There's a reason why I'm so grateful. The fact that a year ago I started talking into one of my son's microphones and we put it on iTunes, and you people started listening. The reason why I keep saying to you, I can't believe I get to talk and do this podcast, I the feedback you all give, traveling around and meeting you all and having you all say that you've been listening to the Robcast, when I say how grateful I am, it's because I have gone through, maybe it's over. Maybe that was a period of life, and now we'll go do something else. Kristen and I had a running joke that at any point I could just sell shoes. Because like in Spinal Tap, you know, he's like, I think I could sell shoes. I think you're an 11. I think you do well in an 11. Um, I, I, there, were some, there was a period there. Empty seats. No guarantees. And a lot of things that I've tried didn't work. And you're like, well, what are those? It's because you didn't hear about them because they didn't work. Um so when people are listening and when they do show up and when you do hear this extraordinary feedback, the gratitude is real. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about you taking whatever step you need to take to be more alive. Whatever the risk, whatever the unknown outcome, the reason why I'm so passionate about you doing that is because all of what looks like failure and the pain and the wringing your hands and not knowing how you're going to pay the bills, it makes it so much better down the road because you're like so much more appreciative. Every time you get to hug someone, every person who stops in public and just wants to say thank you, it's no way that tour that I did in 2011 it was called the fit to smash ice tour and i uh, there was a promotional poster and one of the last nights of the tour i was walking out of the venue i think it was in new york and i saw a poster for the tour and i had just heard from the promoter that he had lost a bunch of money and i was feeling so bad about it and i think the meet and greet line of people who wanted to like have a book signed was like seven people <laughs> i was out of there in like 10 minutes um, there was a poster 
a Fit to Smash Ice promotional poster that my friend, the fantastic graffiti artist Johnny Clausen, had um, done. And much love, Johnny. Uh, I, t- I took the poster and I tore it down and I kept it. And I went home and I went to an art gallery near my house and I asked them if they would frame it in a really nice frame. Uh, with like raised frame, like a floating frame. And I had a custom-made frame made for that poster. And it's on the wall next to my desk in the back house where I, I work and where I record the Robcast when I'm not recording it in a hotel room in Australia. Um, so when I'm interviewing somebody for the Robcast or I'm recording the Robcast or I'm working on a book, I'm looking on the wall at that poster which reminds me of that tour and it reminds me of that period and that time and those questions and the doubts and the wonder and the fear and the hope and the audacity and the swirling emotions of what have we done, where are we headed, what's going, but knowing without a shadow of a doubt, this is the path. And this is where the life is. And the externals may look a little bleak. um, But I'd rather have it like that, but be more alive than ever. Uh, Empty seats and elephants. You might as you... We're all going to die, so you might as well enjoy it. And it's going to be difficult. So you might as well throw yourself into something that fills you with life. And that, my friends, is another episode of the Robcast. Grace and peace. Much love.